0: let's pray. Loving Father, uh, we ask that you uh, enable us to uh, receive your word with humility um, and wisdom. Please help us to reflect on ourselves um, uh, and our world rightly and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Paul said, we're uh, looking at the very sensitive issue of sexuality tonight um, and particularly the issue of homosexuality. Um, It's not a comfortable topic because on the one hand we believe that God's Word is the truth and uh, that's what we need to hold on to, Uh, we dare not let it go but on the other hand we know that the world doesn't like what the Bible says on this topic uh, and it accuses us of being hateful for believing what the Bible says here uh, even if, uh, as the case may be, we may be motivated by love. Uh, We, as Christians, are very used to thinking of ourselves as the solution for the world, Uh, but now we are being told, particularly on this issue of homosexuality and and the whole freight of ideology that comes with all of this, that we're not the solution, we are the problem. Uh, Of course, the Church hasn't always been kind to homosexual people or measured or fair on this topic. Um, We've stigmatised homosexuality uh, and we still need to learn and we're still learning How to care for people with same-sex attraction Uh, but the world doesn't just want us to be fairer or more considerate Uh, the world actually demands that we affirm a homosexual lifestyle as completely fine so there's pressure on christians to change the position that the christian faith has always had in this area and uh, that would mean ignoring the bible or reinterpreting the bible so that it doesn't mean what christians have interpreted it to mean uh, since the first century And since some sections of the church have gone that way and started ignoring the Bible or reinterpreting it, uh, we now have divisions in the church that we've um, uh, been reminded of in the past couple of weeks in the Anglican church. I don't know if you've seen or heard anything about that going on. Uh, And of course, the issue is far more personal than just a church issue for for most. Uh, I'm very aware that there are people in our church who deal with same-sex attraction within themselves and... uh, who are perhaps trying to work out where this fits with their Christian faith and there are people here with family members whom they love and friends whom they care about who are living uh, a gay, lesbian, bisexual life and it's hard to work out how to be faithful as a Christian at the same time as staying close uh, to that friend or loved one. So there's a great deal of angst here at all kinds of levels as Paul said, uh, personal and relational and missional and biblical and ecclesiastical, that is, church. but I want to begin by considering what the Bible says directly about this topic, just so that you can see the Bible passages uh, that are relevant here, and then give some further reflections on this issue as we, ex- as we experience it today. So there's an outline that'll, that'll list the passages etc. Uh, but I want to start once again with the foundation uh, which needs to be Genesis 1 and 2. Um, we've considered this already in previous weeks. Uh, But we've heard that male and female is important to God's plan for humanity. So chapter 1, God made mankind in his image, male and female, he created them, both are needed. Uh, Then in Genesis chapter 2, it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And the answer was not another man, but a woman to complement him perfectly. His equal, very alike to him, uh, made from him and made for him, but a helper, a counterpart, And different to him in some ways and they needed togetherness to fulfill humanity's function of ruling and working and reproduction and reproduction Uh, and to image God's character of love and faithfulness they needed to come together this man and this woman and that togetherness at the end of Genesis chapter 2 is God's blueprint for marriage and sex and family a man and a woman bound together as one flesh So, that's the ideal, that's God's ordering of human sexuality before the fall and it it was very good. And the sexual ethics of the Bible, that is the right and wrong of the Bible in this area of sex, is basically aimed at promoting that ideal that's established at the very start. So, sex belongs within that context of male-female marriage, which is the basis of family. Now you may have heard uh, the claim that there's room for same-sex marriage in Genesis chapter 2. It's claimed that the main issue in Genesis 2 is aloneness and God's solution is loving relationship and that there's nothing about reproduction in Genesis chapter 2, so it doesn't have to be male and female. It's about loneliness and relationship. However, we have to read Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 1 together. and consider that the main problem uh, with the man's aloneness wasn't loneliness, it was an inability to do what God had put him there to do. Uh, There's a reason that God gave the man a woman, he needed a complement, not a clone. Humanity needs the mix of males and females to function properly. And I'd argue that there is reproduction implicit in Genesis 2, the one flesh union implies that because the one flesh of the man and the woman implicitly produces more of its own flesh and blood, uh, it's a family. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are hugely significant as the foundations of biblical sexuality. So that's the first thing and, and that really is the foundation for the whole Bible uh, and for creation in, in the Christian biblical worldview. So, if we turn to the references in the Bible that specifically mention homosexuality, we find that the practice of homosexuality is regarded as a departure from God's order and where that departure is a deliberate choice, it's regarded as a sin. The first reference to homosexuality in the Bible is the incident in Sodom in Genesis chapter 19 and there's a mirror incident of that in the Israelite town of Gibeah in Judges chapter 19. Uh, In Sodom, an outcry over that town's sinfulness reaches God, and God sends two angels to Sodom to investigate. And the angels arrive, and Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, insists that they stay at his house rather than sleeping in the town square, because he knows how the locals treat visitors. Verses 4 and 5. During the night, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot... Where are the men who came to you you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. The story goes on in a rather awful way and in the end, the angels call fire down from heaven as an act of judgment from God. Now, some claim that this doesn't have anything to do with homosexual relationships. Uh, It's really about lack of hospitality and it's about the worst kind of bullying and degradation, which of course is rape. And that is true. But the homosexual element in what the men of Sodom were planning to do seems to be meant to add at least something to the darkness of the moral climate that the angels find in that city, I think. Uh, That seems to be how the New Testament understands it as well because in Jude, it describes the people of Sodom giving themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. So, the chapter, Genesis the sodom incident is not all about homosexuality but that element is meant to add something to the darkness of that chapter further on in the old testament uh homosexual sex is prohibited in god's law in israel's law uh, leviticus eighteen twenty-two it says do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman that is detestable now that's part of a chapter leviticus 18 of laws concerning sex and family Uh, The main concern is that Israel needed to uphold God's order in order to thrive in the promised land that God was giving them. The Canaanites did not uphold God's order. The Canaanites did all these things that are listed in these laws and so they were being kicked out. It says at the end of the chapter that all these things that the Canaanites were doing were detestable, that is, hateful to God. They twisted God's good design for family and sex by blurring boundaries all over the place. So it's in that context that this law against homosexual sex is there. Now, we've probably all heard it said that um, and claimed that this law should not, we shouldn't apply this law anymore because there's lots of other Old Testament laws that we seem to ignore. So why do we make so much of this one? If you ignore the law about not eating pork and you like eating pork, then why do you still hold to this law about homosexuality? You're a hypocrite if you do. Well, the thing is that none of the old testament laws apply to christians directly anymore because we are not old testament israelites christians are not under the old testament law the law is not our master jesus is our master however the old testament law is still our friend the law has things to teach us as we read it in the light of its fulfillment in christ and we're told explicitly in the new testament On the laws about not eating pork for example uh, that Christians can eat anything now that law wasn't really all about pork Uh, it had a higher principle there but when it comes to the Old Testament law against homosexual sex we find it still regarded in the New Testament as being against God's will the law reflected God's foundational ordering of creation which still should be reflected in our sexual ethics according to the New Testament Uh, we see in the New Testament that we're still supposed to value God's foundation for marriage and sex uh, as Jesus did so in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus was asked about divorce he talked about marriage and he quoted from Genesis 1 and 2 he said it's God who puts male and female together and the two are joined as one flesh so that was Jesus framework for sex and marriage he still upheld that foundation So, when we come to the New Testament, we find a few places where homosexual uh, practice is mentioned specifically. In 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6, those who engage in homosexual acts are listed amongst a whole lot of others, such as murderers and liars and greedy people and drunkards, who need to see that their conduct goes against God's will. They can't inherit the kingdom of God as they are, but they can turn to God and they can turn away from their sin and be saved and changed. And so paul says to the corinthians that's what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified through your faith in jesus so homosexual acts are listed there amongst those other lists of uh, amongst those other sins some see those references to homosexuality in those lists and they look at those words in particular uh, and they note that it's not talking about homosexual orientation And that's true. In fact, the Bible doesn't talk about same-sex orientation. It doesn't talk about same-sex attraction anywhere. It's the act of homosexual sex that is described as sin in the Bible. Uh, It's also claimed that those verses, uh, where those words are used to describe homosexual sex, it's claimed that they're only referring to visiting male prostitutes, a very sort of specific behaviour, They say nothing about loving relationships, so it says. But there isn't good reason to interpret those words so narrowly. It seems clear that they're referring generally to homosexual sex as being against God's will. So there's that uh, little mention in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy. Romans 1 is the final passage uh, that mentions homosexuality explicitly, and that was the reading that we had. And as we read, this is in the context of pagan idolatry, Uh, Paul says that people exchange the worship of the creator for the worship of created things and that leads to people exchanging God's order in creation for their own ordering of things and the example that Paul uses there is, is homosexual lusts and acts both of women and of men as an example of that exchange of God's ordering for our own ordering of things. And then he moves on from that to a long list of sins that come about from thumbing our noses at god so the reason paul mentions homosexual acts here is not to single them out as the worst sins but as a clear example of rejecting god's order now it's often said of those who are attracted to the same sex well god made them that way and so for them that is natural but romans 1 says That it's God who should define what's natural through his word rather than us and how we feel. Our feelings very often uh, express the misshapenness of the world and lead us into unnatural directions. Uh, It's God's word rather than our feelings that defines what's natural and right for human beings. So Paul is saying here that homosexual lust and sex is an example of going off God's path. Uh, making up our own ordering of things rather than God's. So it's fairly clear, to me at least, from all these Bible passages that the expression of homosexuality is wrong in God's sight. The temptation towards homosexual lust and sex needs to be resisted by the person who wants to take God seriously. As does the temptation towards any sexual lust or sex outside of marriage, not just same sex and homosexual behaviour needs to be repented of if a person wants to be a follower of Jesus along with all of the sin by all of us that we need to repent of if we want to follow Jesus. Now I realise it's probably no surprise to you uh, that that's my conclusion having looked at the Bible that the Bible regards uh, homosexuality as a, a departure from God's order but I think it is important for us to see where it's coming from in the Bible, at least now you've, you've been pointed to the passages, uh, albeit briefly, especially th- since there are those who try to muddy the waters and claim that the Bible can be read otherwise and that uh, same-sex activity is fine according to God. I think it's fairly clear when you actually read the Bible passages that it's not. So now I'd like to think about uh, some of the important issues that we face as we try to hold out this biblical truth at odds with the world and there are three things that i think we particularly need to remember the first thing we need to remember is that sex isn't everything and i made this point last week and it'll probably be made next week as well in the sermon on singleness but it's worth mentioning in this context also Um, i read a quote from somebody who was on the panel on that show q a uh, quite some time ago and uh, that person was responding to christian teaching on sex and homosexuality Uh, very angrily and where does this leave me was really what he was saying and he said uh, in the Christian uh, teaching you can never have sex you have to live your life an entirely sterile life without sex it's so unspeakably nasty and cruel I'm sorry I have no patience with it anymore it's just bigotry and cruelty and hatred and the audience erupted in applause now of course anyone who's single is in the same situation, gay or straight. In the Bible, sex is reserved for marriage. If you're not married, you are called to be celibate at this stage. To some, that seems very cruel to starve people of sex, especially same-sex attracted people who are told that they can never act on that desire. And we can't run away from that, it's where the Bible leaves us. But there are some other truths, I think, that need to be heard here. Firstly, the world idolises sex. It tells us that sex is everything, it's who you are, it's the goal of life to be sexually fulfilled and it's every person's right to be satisfied in their own way. But all the sex in the world is not going to satisfy a person's soul. It cannot deliver what is being promised for it. And knowing Christ is better than sex... And you have to believe that if you're going to be a Christian. And getting married and being able to have sex is not God's great happily ever after for us. Being reconciled to God and being with Him for eternity is God's goal for us. As Christians, of course, we believe in marriage and family. We value them because we believe they're part of God's ordering and they're good. But we should not idealize them as if marriage and family is the goal of life. It's perfectly valid to choose not to marry and to remain celibate. And there are other kinds of relationships that aren't sexual that can be very close and enriching in our lives. Uh, There's a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin uh, and in that book there's a chapter titled Isn't Christianity Homophobic? And she says some very helpful things about the depth of relationship that is possible in friendship and Christian fellowship which don't include sex. She writes, in the biblical framework, friendship is not the consolation prize for those who fail to gain romantic love. She notes how the New Testament encourages lots of really close friendships between Christians and she writes, in modern society we're led to believe we cannot live without sex. In fact, I believe we are more likely to wither without friend and family love. Uh, Now, she acknowledges that it's very difficult to not be able to to act on your longings and desires. But I think there's a truth in what she's saying there about the richness that's possible in other kinds of relationships, and that should challenge us as a church. Uh, We load all of these expectations onto marriage and sex and happy families as if those things should be all satisfying. But the Bible says, well, what about the church family? Isn't there supposed to be some intimacy and love there? Surely that's meant to be a great help to the single Christian who doesn't have a husband or a wife, but has many brothers and sisters. What does that count for? It should count for a lot. So perhaps we all need to invest in the church family a little more and invest in really close friendships in church with people in all kinds of situations, including those who aren't married or who can't marry. We mustn't pretend that sex and marriage are everything, Sex is not everything. So that's the first thing that we need to remember here. The second thing is we need to remember that sin is everywhere. Uh, The stigma around homosexuality, as if it's somehow more sinful than anything else, is very unhelpful and it's unbiblical. It could be that self-righteous religious people have liked to single out homosexuality because if you can point to a minority and say, well, at least I'm not one of them, then attention is drawn from your sin and you can look down on somebody else. You can pretend to be better. But sin is in all of us in different forms. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 6, which I referred to before, Paul mentions a list of all kinds of sinners, including those who've practiced homosexuality. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god and that is what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god so the church is nothing more than a collection of forgiven sinners of various kinds who've all turned away from their sin to enter the kingdom of god and receive salvation through jesus christ But here's the question is it harder for some to be accepted into that fellowship because of the particular sin that they have turned away from god doesn't hold them their sin against them anymore but the question is do we we can probably see why a same-sex attracted person would be very careful who they shared their struggle with in church and maybe we can see why someone who's previously identified as gay and who's now interested in jesus Might feel that they can never find a place in a church and that is a great tragedy if that's the case. I would like us to be the kind of church where it's safe for anyone to come and be listened to and helped to come to Jesus no matter where they've come from. If there's any group in society that should be known for its diversity it should be the Christian church. So how can we be that kind of church? How can we be more accepting of our fellow forgiven sinners of various kinds? Since we know that sin is everywhere, we are all in the fight together, we're all sinners, we are all sexual sinners of one kind or another, and no one should be made to feel like an other in the church. So sin is everywhere. And lastly, the third thing that we need to remember is that we owe the world truth and love. Um, There are various ways that the world tries to force its new ideologies on everyone and perhaps especially Christians. Um, The most chilling example uh, that I've heard of was during the same-sex marriage debate. uh, Some companies produced this black ring which you put on your finger. It wasn't quite complete. There was a little gap in the ring and inscribed on the ring were the words until we all belong. In other words, until we all belong subscribe to this new ideology and it kind of makes you think well what about the employee who who conscientiously objects because they're a Christian Uh, what's going to happen to them until we all belong but of course uh, more recently there's the manly NRL team's rainbow pride jersey controversy and there's the regular rainbow days at schools where the kids are encouraged to dress up in rainbow to express their support for diversity etc uh, so, there's a, there are those kind of public issues and then, of course, there are difficult situations on a more personal level. Conversations with gay workmates or neighbours or people we love, people in our family. For example, what does a Christian do when a gay family member invites them to their same-sex wedding? Those are awkward decisions and sometimes they're kind of lose-lose decisions in a way. They're never black and white and they require great wisdom to work out what to do. We owe the world love And truth. Uh, I was asked in a question time the other week, would Jesus have worn the manly pride jersey? Um, The thing that the Pharisees could not work out about Jesus was why he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He became he 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 went to their house and he ate with them. He became their guy, he became associated with them as their friend. But then again, uh, Jesus was willing to let sinners who would not repent walk away from him sad he said he looked at him and he loved him and the guy walked away sad he was willing to let him go he didn't compromise the truth about sin he wasn't afraid to draw lines and say there's the line you've got to be on God's side and Jesus explained it like this it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance so he got close to sinners in love but he called them to repent in truth Now, of course in our context uh, the demand is that everyone must affirm homosexual practice and if you don't affirm it then you accused you're accused of hate uh, which is quite unfair i think in many cases would jesus have worn the manly pride jersey well if it were consistent with both love and truth yes Uh, but if it were if it were contrary to either love or truth then no then again Jesus might have seen the whole thing as something of a trap as he did at various points. He saw the trap that people laid for him and uh, he might have done something tricky like throwing a question back at the person and sort of, you know how he did that a couple of times? Just brilliant, the way he just evaded the trap and put it right back on them. Or a couple of other times he just vanished through the crowd and no one knew where he'd gone. (laughs) So uh, maybe he'd have done that. Anyway, uh, would Jesus go to his cousin's same-sex wedding? Well, I guess he would ask the question, how can I best serve both love and truth? What is genuinely best for others? Uh, What will open up constructive relationship in the future? How can I build on their understanding of the truth? What do they already understand about the truth? How can I best encourage them to respond to the truth? Uh, I guess Jesus' choice would depend on lots of things. Uh, These are genuinely difficult issues and situations for Christians to be placed in and I I would say you shouldn't be too hard on yourself if you're placed in that situation and if you think hard about it and you do what you think is best what you think is best don't beat yourself up that maybe you've done the wrong thing just do your best in good conscience but we owe the world truth and love and that requires courage sometimes and a willingness to suffer perhaps unjustly Uh, Sometimes it means being the bad guys in people's eyes, sometimes it means being misunderstood. The church at the moment as a whole is tying itself in knots over this issue, in some cases it's letting go of the truth in the name of love but we need to occupy that awkward place in the middle where sometimes we get beaten up and hold on to both love and truth. So let me pray that God gives us wisdom to do this um, and navigate this issue. Loving Father, we pray that you would help us to love other people like Jesus loves people. We pray that you would help us to value the truth as Jesus valued the truth and spoke it fearlessly. We pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to repent of our sin, whatever that might be, and make us useful and helpful to one another in that process. We pray for our fellowship, that it would be safe and welcoming and loving, as well as upholding your truth. And we pray lord god that you'd give us wisdom moment by moment as we navigate this world uh, which is so mixed up and has uh, walked away from your ordering of things father please help us and help us to be salt and light in this world in this issue and we ask it in jesus name amen